Well, good morning, and let me add my happy Mother's Day to all of you as well, mothers and grandmothers here, and those who may be uh, watching online. And uh, speaking of Daniel, it's about 8.30 at night there, so uh, good evening, Daniel, and uh, looking forward to having you back with us next week. So it is Mother's Day, but we are in a, still in a section of Scripture that talks about submission. So you may be wondering why that is. Well, in the wisdom and sovereignty of God, I would submit that that is no accident. For motherhood and submission have a lot in common, because as we will see in many respects, mothers give us a beautiful picture of what Christ-like submission actually looks like. For there is nothing like being a mother that shows us so well what it means to put the needs of others above your own, to sacrifice yourself physically and emotionally for others, and to labor long and hard, often without thanks in any visible sense, all the while exuding love, compassion, patience, tenderness, and grace. And you see, these are all attributes of God, and they are all what Jesus has done and still does for us, which are on beautiful display in mothers. And we're going to be looking at some of those this morning in our text. But not only that, but in the submission of mothers to fulfill the command that God gave to be fruitful and multiply, they thereby give birth to us. And in that, we see a picture of Christ's submission to the will of the Father to give us new life in him. Because our mothers all endured a portion of the curse on creation, that there would be pain in childbirth in order to give us physical and natural life in these mortal bodies. And Jesus endured the fullness of the curse, which was death, in order to give us spiritual and eternal life and the resurrection bodies that we will one day receive. So far, from 1 Peter 2, 13 and onward, for the last several weeks, we have learned about submitting, first to the authority of government, then to the authority of those over us in the workplace, and last week about submission in marriage. In short, I hope you can see that we as Christians are to be submissive people because our Lord was that way when he was here on earth. In Ephesians 5.21, right before the command to wives to submit to their own husbands in that passage, we are told all of us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, Jesus is submissive to the will of the Father. He submitted to the weaknesses and the frailties and the limitations of the human condition in which we live when he came from heaven to earth. And while Jesus walked the face of this earth, he also submitted to the governing authorities and let them take him captive, try him, convict him, beat him, and kill him, even though it was all wrongfully and unjustly done. And in the final hours of the earthly life of Jesus, when he was facing his imminent death, in order to carry out the will of the Father to save us. Remember he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. To be a disciple of Jesus means to follow him. That was the invitation he gave to his first disciples in Matthew 4.19, follow me. So we as his disciples are to follow him into a life of submission. But let's be honest. It's kind of hard because it goes against our pride, doesn't it? And our natural love of self. And frankly, there's no way that we can do it in our own strength, especially when it comes to the fruit of a submitted life, 
which is what our next section of 1 Peter is all about. You see, it's only through Christ living in us that any of us can live the submitted life. We need to live in the reality of what Paul speaks of in Galatians 2.20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ, so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then, as we get out of the way and let Jesus live his life out through us, we will begin to see the fruit of submission become evident in our lives. So with that as an introduction, let's read our next section of Scripture, which is just four small verses, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. So read along with me, please. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now the first word we have in our section there, if you look at it, is the word finally. So after all this talk about submission these past several weeks, most of us are probably glad, right, to hear that word, finally. But I got bad news for you. That is not the end of the sermon today. It's actually just the beginning. And uh, seriously, though, this tells us that Peter is about to conclude this rather long section urging us as Christians to live as submissive people. But unlike the earlier things Peter had to say about submission, which were directed to specific types of people in specific relationships, like citizens to government, employees to employers, or wives to husbands, this final concluding section is directed to all of us, not just to those groups of people. Because look at the next words after finally. It says there, all of you. So what we have next applies to all of us, every single one of us, as we live as submissive people, not just to specific people in specific relationships, but rather to all Christians in all circumstances at all times. You see, God wants all of us to have these things listed there in the following words, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Or to put it another way, God is saying there that these are all things that should come out of us as submissive people. You know, another way we could look at it in a phrase the Bible often uses is to use the concept of seeing fruit. And so I like to see these things as the fruit of a submissive life or a life that is submitted to Jesus as Lord and is under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. These are what come out of a person who has been crucified with Christ and who has died to self so that the life of Jesus might be lived out through them. And the longer I've lived as a Christian, the more I've learned that that's what this is really all about. It's not me trying to do these things. It's me just getting me out of the way so that Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit can live his life out through me. 
So let's unpack these, starting with the first one, unity of mind, because all behavior starts in the mind. Right thinking does not necessarily guarantee right behavior, but without right thinking, we have absolutely no hope or possibility of right behavior. So this starts in the mind. Paul talks about similar attributes of Christ-like behavior in Ephesians 4, and then he says in Ephesians 4.17 that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of, guess what, their minds. And then he says in Ephesians 4.23 that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And also in Romans 12.2, before Paul embarks on several chapters of what Christian behavior should look like, he says that we are to renew our minds. So what is unity of mind? Well, for starters, here's something it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that everyone is the same. For elsewhere, the Bible teaches that there are many and varied gifts amongst any group of Christians. And that in the church body, some people are hands, some people are feet, some are eyes, but we're all part of one body. So here we are called to all be of one mind, but that doesn't mean in everything. For some of us like donuts, and some of us don't like donuts. Some of us like to sit in the front of the church. Some of us like to sit in the back of the church. Some of us go to a morning Bible study, and some of us go to an evening Bible study. So the unity of mind that is being spoken of here is not a sameness with respect to all the preferences that we may have in life. It is, however, with respect to the truths or the principles that guide us and govern us that we are to be unified. In short, as it is said in 1 Corinthians 2.16, we are all to have the mind of Christ. Or in other words, to think like Jesus thinks. That's part of learning how to follow him, is to think like he thinks, which is always, always in accordance with God's word. So all of us need to learn to think biblically, not in accordance with the ways of the world. You see, contrary to popular opinion, which sometimes exists even in the church, all truth is not God's truth. Wisdom simply means the application of truth to the circumstances of life. And you see, the Bible teaches that there is a wisdom of this world, and then there is a wisdom of God, and that the two are very, very different and are generally opposed to each other. We see in James 3, 14 to 16, that worldly wisdom is described there as being full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and that it is unspiritual and, in fact, demonic, and that it results in disorder and every kind of vile practice. I mean, look around us, and what do we see in our world? But exactly that, disorder and every kind of vile practice. Then James 3.17 tells us that godly wisdom is pure and also peaceable, gentle, open to reason, which means that it's submissive and teachable, and that it's full of mercy and full of good fruits, as well as impartial and sincere. So as Jesus thought biblically, what was he focused on the most when he was here on earth? Wasn't it salvation? and the spreading of the gospel. He said that he came, remember, to save sinners. And he taught us to pray that God's kingdom would come here on earth just as it is in heaven. 
Well, you see, that needs to be our unity of mind. That needs to be what we are focused on, the spread of the gospel and the advancement of God's kingdom. And that happens in two principal ways. First, as new people are brought into the kingdom. But secondly, as those already in it are built up in the kingdom as they become mature disciples, mature followers of Christ. The Greek word that is translated there as unity of mind meant to have a harmony of intent or purpose, a harmony of intent or purpose. So think about this. We are to be much like an orchestra or a praise band. We all have different instruments. We all sing in different tones, but we're all in harmony and we're all singing the same tune, that Jesus is the God-man who came from heaven and earth to be the only Savior and Lord, and that there is salvation found only in him, and that that salvation is offered freely to all who receive it, and that the invitation is not just to heaven, but to living a new life now, a transformed life here and now on this earth. So unity of mind, you see, is evident in the church when we're all pulling in that same direction toward advancing the cause of the gospel and advancing God's kingdom. And this is the first fruit that Peter gives us here of living a submitted life. And you see, unity of mind is absolutely impossible unless we're all submitted people who will set aside our own preferences for what we might like to be doing as a church family to make room for the greater good of what Christ wants us to be doing, which is spreading the gospel and advancing the kingdom. Now, the next fruit of a submitted life that we see in our text today is sympathy. And the Greek word translated there as sympathy meant to have compassion, but it was compassion to the point of being able to pick up on and relate to what someone else was feeling. You know, it reminds me of something I read about Spurgeon's church in London in the 1850s to 1890s. Many of you know it was a huge church, five to 10,000 people every weekend. They turned the city upside down for Christ in all kinds of ways. But rather than have altar calls like we do now, he had about 200 deacons seated out amongst the audience that were so in tune just with the faces of the people sitting around them that they would look for the sign of conviction on someone's face and go over and talk to them and lead them to Christ. Wow, if that isn't a sense of sympathy and compassion, of being in tune with people around you. Our English word, sympathy, actually comes from a combination of two Latin words, sim, S-Y-M, and pathos, P-A-T-H-O-S. Sim means the same, and pathos means feeling, and interestingly enough, in some cases, suffering. So sympathy then means to have the same feeling or even perhaps the same suffering as someone else, as in the way the Bible tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. In other words, to take on the feeling and the emotion of our brothers and sisters to the point where we feel and emote those same things. Jesus, you see, was, was full of compassion in the Greek sense of the word, especially for those who did not know him yet. Matthew 9.36 tells us that when he saw the great crowds of people, he had compassion on them. And he saw them not as enemies, but rather as sheep without a shepherd. For us who know him, Hebrews 4.15 says that he is able to sympathize 
with our weaknesses. And you know, except for Jesus, I can't think of a better group of people who exemplify compassion and sympathy, as we've just talked about it, than mothers. They are the ones who are there when we skin our knees or get picked on by other kids at school or get a bad grade on a test, even though we tried our, our best. They're the ones who feel our loneliness and our pain, and they smile when we're doing well. And when we are sick, there is no one better to have around than a mother. In our family, when the kids were growing up, it was always Janet who had the sympathetic heart and took them to urgent care in the middle of the night when they were sick. Me? I usually thought, oh, give them a couple Tylenol and they'll be fine in the morning. But I have to admit that she was always right. That is something, husbands, you have to be able to say is that your wife is right. She was always right because almost every time she did that, the kids would come back from urgent care with a diagnosis of some raging infection that I was completely oblivious to. So thank God for mothers. The next fruit of a submitted person that we see in our text is brotherly love. This is phileo love in Greek, from which we get the name Philadelphia for the city of brotherly love. And this was a friendship type of love, like David and Jonathan had in the Old Testament. Phileo love was a devotion to someone else where you really, really cared about them and you sought to encourage them. You liked to spend time with them. You shared good things with them and you would seek to protect them from harm. And we are all brothers and sisters in Christ because through him we have the same Father in heaven and he is our brother. Now this fruit of brotherly love is sometimes hard to manifest also because we sometimes look around us and think, man, I really don't want to spend time with that person. I mean, they're so, so different from me, I can't possibly ever understand them. But you know what? they may be thinking exactly the same thing about you. <laughs> so we have to get over it. We need to do better than that. Because Jesus said that the world, meaning all those people who we're trying to reach with the gospel, the world will know that we're his disciples by our love for one another. So here's something that we need to remember that might make for great peace amongst us now and help us with brotherly love. And that is this. Look around you. Look at the person next to you, your right, your left, behind you, in front of you. And guess what? Assuming they know the Lord, you're going to be spending eternity with them. So you might as well get to know them now. And you might as well get <laughs> along with them now, right? <laughs> so let's look next at um, the next one, which is having a tender heart. Um, Ephesians 4.32 tells us uh, to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. So Jesus, we see there, has a tender heart towards us. And in Matthew 23, 37, we see that he has a tender heart even towards those who reject him. For speaking of Jerusalem, he says there in the week before he was crucified, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Notice that Jesus said hen there, not rooster. Don't mothers also come to mind when we think of tender-heartedness? The Greek word for this meant not only to be compassionate, but also to be full of mercy. 
And in the Bible, God actually uses the example of a mother to show how he has compassion and mercy on us. He does it several times. Look at Isaiah 49, 15. He says this, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. And then in Isaiah again, Isaiah 66, 13, it says this, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And then also in the New Testament, Paul, when he's writing to the church at Thessalonica that he had spent time at, and he's reflecting the heart of God towards those people, he says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 about how he had treated the people in that church when he was there. He says, but, when, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So when we struggle with having a tender heart towards others, we need to go back, and like some of you might do with the steaks you're cooking for your moms today, we need to marinate our hearts in the tenderness of God's word and what it says about him having a tender heart toward us. And then the next fruit listed here that comes out of a submitted person is a humble mind, which in Greek meant a lowliness of mind, or actually having a humble opinion of oneself. And this is truly an inside-out virtue because that also starts in the mind and in the heart and in how we think about ourselves. Jesus said this, actually, about himself at the end of Matthew 11 where he invited all who were weary and heavy, heavy laden to come to him and find rest for their souls. He said this in verse 29, For I am gentle and lowly in heart. So for us ever prideful human beings who think so much of ourselves, how can we learn to say that about ourselves, that we are lowly in heart? Well, there's one consistent place in the Bible we see time and time again that humility comes from, and it is from being in the presence of and contemplating God's holiness. We see Isaiah get humbled in Isaiah 6-5 after having had this awesome vision of the throne room of God with the flying angels and the foundations shaking and the smoke and all the rest in God's throne room in heaven. And Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost. We see Job have a similar experience in uh, the book of Job after he has an encounter with God's creative power. And he says in Job 40, verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. And again in Job 42, 6, when he says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In the New Testament, we see Peter, who's writing this letter, get humbled in Luke 5, 8, when he first meets the Lord. And that's that time when they had been fishing all night and caught no fish. And they come in, and Jesus is walking on the sand, and he says, Go out there and put your nets over on that side of the boat. And they do it, and their nets are breaking because there's so many fish they can't pull them in. You know what Peter says in Luke 5, 8 after that, after this encounter with the deity of Christ? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then we see John, the one who referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, the one who was always reclining at table with Jesus, part of that inner circle with James and Peter, but when he sees Jesus in Revelation, 
He tells us this in Revelation 1.17, that he, when he has this vision of Jesus, he says, then I fell at his feet as a dead man. And these are all people, brothers and sisters, that we would look up to. We would call them real, quote-unquote, holy men of God. And yet when they compare themselves to God himself, look at what happens to them. It always, always humbles them. So the lesson for us is this. Pride comes from comparing ourselves to others. And that's easy to do. You can always find someone you think you're doing better than. But humility comes from comparing ourselves to God. And so that is how we find this humility of mind. Well, now let's go on to verse 9. Because in verse 9 we see the final fruit that comes out of a submitted person. And that is that instead of getting even with those who have wronged them, they instead bless them. You know, our human nature is to get even with those who have wronged us. I mean, it is a trait that is on full display in many of our leading TV shows and movies. The very popular one, and I'll admit I watch it, Yellowstone comes to mind, right? And we could go back a generation to J.R. Ewing in Dallas and see the same thing, getting even, returning evil for evil, insult for insult. And so in our humanness, evil is met with evil. And reviling or insult is met with reviling or insult. And the Greek word used in our translation here for revile literally meant to insult. And that attribute of humanity comes to light, doesn't it, in our politics every day. Rather than talk about policies, it's who can trade the, the best insults against each other. So that's just part of our, our human nature. But again, Jesus was not that way. Back in 2 Peter 2.22 that we saw a few weeks ago, we were told that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And then Isaiah 53, verse 7, in the midst of that amazing messianic chapter written 700 years before Christ, speaking of Messiah, we are told this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Now when Jesus was on the cross, what did he do? He blessed those who were around him, including those who crucified him and those who were mocking him while he was hanging there. For he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So if Jesus could do that on the cross, surely we can bless others throughout our day, living in all the comforts that we have of this life and with far lesser struggles than going through death on a cross. You know, as an elder for many, many years, you know where I have often been the most blessed? It's been among Christians who are really, really sick, sometimes to the point of death. And we have gone to anoint them with oil and pray for them in accordance with the instructions in James 5. I remember one man years ago who was near death from cancer. In fact, he died about a week after we had prayed with him. And he told us that he didn't really care whether our prayers worked or not and whether he got healed or not. Because he said as far as he was concerned, this was a win-win scenario. Because either we prayed for him and he got healed or we prayed for him and he didn't get healed and he got to go home and be with the Lord. Wow, what faith to see coming out of Christians in that difficult time. I remember a woman with severe advanced MS, multiple sclerosis. It had crippled her to the point that she was all hunched over 
in her wheelchair. She couldn't even sit up straight. And she told us that she thanked God for giving her MS because otherwise she wouldn't have been able to get so close to him. I mean, talk about being a blessing. When any one of us would have understood why someone in those situations had shown perhaps a different attitude. You see, that was Christ in them. That was them getting out of the way and letting Christ live his life out through them. And when you and I let him live his life out through us, those kinds of things will come out of us too. Now the next part of verse 9 says that we were called, it says there. This is the life to which we were called. And the Greek word for called there actually meant to be named. And that is so perfect because what we're looking at, this is the Christian way. This is the way of Christ, the way named after Christ. Do you know that when followers of Jesus uh, in history were first started being called Christians, it was by the Romans who persecuted them in the first century. And the word literally meant in, in the Latin, little Christ. And it was meant to be an insult. So here's a thought that has helped me in this area. And it is to realize that as we go about our day, God is presenting us with situation after situation where we have a choice to either be a blessing or be a curse to those around us. And so in the name of Jesus and by the power of his spirit, choose to be a blessing. But that goes against our nature too, doesn't it? So here's what else helps. Have you ever noticed at the beginning of all the epistles how Peter and Paul and John all introduced themselves by saying something like, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or I, Peter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ? The very first thing they thought about when they would introduce themselves was that they belonged to Jesus. It was that they were a Christian. And so I wonder what would happen if when we woke up in the morning, that was our, our first thought. Wow, I'm a Christian. I bear the name of Christ. And I'm called to be a little Christ as I go throughout my day. And what if after that we then asked God to show us people in our day that we could be a blessing to? And I guarantee you, if you start waking up that way and praying that way, watch out, be prepared, because that is a prayer that is in accordance with God's will. And those are the kinds of prayers that he answers every time. And now I am going to say, finally, as in meaning that we are, in fact, near the end of the sermon. But we have one more concept to look at. And it runs from the end of verse 9 there in our text all the way down through verse 12. And that is that those who bless, we see there, will themselves be blessed. So let's unpack that from the end of verse 9 through verse 12. We are told there in the end of verse 9 that if we bless others, we will obtain a blessing. And then verses 10 to 12 is actually a quote from the Old Testament, from Psalm 34, 12 to 15, which tells us that if we do that, it says there in the first part that we will love life, that we will see good days, that we will have peace, and at the end it tells us that we will have the eyes and ears of God upon us. So how does this work? Since our faith is not based on our works, but rather on God's grace. Well, as usual, it helps to define some terms. The word for life that is used there in the blessing there of loving life, being one who will love life, in the Greek, that word is zoe, Z-O-E. 
which meant life to its fullest in all of its aspects and forms, physical, spiritual, emotional. And so when we see eternal life in the New Testament, that's what it's talking about. It means to have the fullness of all that life was meant to be in all of its aspects forever and ever and ever. Now the Hebrew word for the same thing, which is actually what's used in Psalm 34, it's interesting because we have the Greek version here in our text where Zoe is there. If you go back to Psalm 34 and look it up in the Hebrew, you'll see a different word, obviously, because it's Hebrew. And the Greek word, the Hebrew word, excuse me, used in Psalm 34 for life is chayim, from which we get the traditional Jewish saying of rochayim, which means to life. Keep that in the back of your mind as we move on. The next word we see in there that's important to understand is good. And the word used there for good, that you would see good days, meant an intrinsic good. It didn't mean necessarily that circumstances were good, but it meant literally the goodness of God, which is the same word used over in Romans 8.28 in the verse we all love, which tells us that for those who are called by his name, God works all things together for good. And that same word in the Hebrew is used in Psalm 73.28, where goodness is described there as being nearness to God. That's God's definition of good, is actually being near to him. And we kind of see that concept of good, even in the English, at the end of our passage here. For it then speaks of God's eyes being on the righteous and his ears being open to their prayers, which pictures a close, intimate relationship with God, a nearness to God. So putting all this together, what life means and what this goodness means, here is what this section is telling us. If you want to love living, if you want to see the goodness of God in every day and be at peace, then do these things. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good and seek and pursue peace. But this is not calling us to any type of works or rewards-based type of faith because we are saved by grace through faith. What it is saying, though, that is if the things described in verses 8 and 9 that we unpack so carefully, which are all the result of Christ living in you, the fruit of a submitted life, if those things are truly inside of you, then the fruit that comes out of you will be that you enjoy life and you enjoy your days here on this earth, no matter what kind of circumstances they bring, and that you live in a close, intimate relationship with God. Who here has been to a Jewish wedding? Some of you? Okay. Well, at Jewish weddings and other significant Jewish events, you recall that phrase, chlachayim, being used, often accompanied by a toast. Well, here's what's fascinating as I did a deep dive into the meaning of this word and uh, read some Jewish messianic material on this. This life that is being talked about here in our text by the use of the Hebrew word chayim, phonetically spelled H-A-Y-I-M, is not limited to just the few decades, the three decades plus 10, as the Bible says, of physical life that the average person spends here on this earth. The letters A-Y-I-M, the last part of that, actually mean double or pair or twin. So in Hebrew, if you were talking about a pair of socks, for instance, You would take the word for sock, which phonetically is garb, G-A-R-B, which is interesting because we sometimes call our clothing that, and you would add I-M, A-Y-I-M to it to make the word garbayim, 
or in other words, a pair of socks. And so the phrase, Wahayim, which is that toast repeated at Jewish weddings and events, comes from a combination of the Hebrew word for life with the word for double or pair. So what is actually being said there is that there are two lives, which for us as Christians, we know to be a physical life in these bodies, but also a new life given to us in Christ of knowing God and being in a relationship with him. And that life comes when the one thing, the one thing, the only thing that prevents us from having a relationship with God, which is sin, is removed through the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus did that by going to a cross as a sinless man who had lived an absolutely perfect life so that in the will of God the Father, he could then take on the sins of the world, which includes the sins of you and me. And all of those could be placed on him so that by his death, our sins could be atoned and paid for and we could be forgiven. And so, thinking of Lahayim, that is the choice before us this morning, to choose life. Do you choose Lahayim? Choose the life that is more than just the short physical life here on this earth. Choose the life that is two lives, life here, but also life eternal, with God's loving eyes and ears upon you, now and forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your amazing word, Lord. No man could ever write like this, Lord. No man could ever conceive of the thoughts that you put into your word. So we thank you that you give it to us, Lord. May we leave here this morning amazed at you, amazed at who you are, at what you do for us, amazed at the truth of your word. Lord, may everyone here, if they have not done so, choose Wahayim, choose to have life in all of its fullest, that it's meant to be a life with you and a relationship with you. If there be any here who are not sure that their sins are forgiven, Lord, would you ask them and move them right now to just put their faith and trust and confidence in you, Jesus, to forgive them fully, finally, and forever for their sins. May they give their life to you, Lord. May they then enjoy this Lahayim life, and may you then live your life out through them for the advancement of your kingdom and of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.